Good evening, and welcome to Morph Mom Moments. This is Kathleen Smith. I'm the founder of Morph Mom, and I'm here with my co-host tonight, Elizabeth Lenz. We're very, very excited for a thrilling conversation, and for all you history buffs and those interested in the in the history of military and, and defense and wars, what a night, what a conversation, what a guest we have for you tonight. Um, before I, now I've left you with a teaser, before I do the actual introduction, let me give you a quick introduction as to what you've got yourselves into. Uh, welcome back to all those that have listened to us before. And for those who are new to Morph Mom Moments, welcome. Uh, again, my name is Kathleen Smith. I founded Morph Mom, which is M-O-R-P-H-M-O-M.com, about seven years ago. Uh, I'd been a prosecutor. I'd stayed home with kids, couldn't figure out what to do, couldn't go back into doing what I'd love to do, and had to figure out what my next step was. And rather than uh, rather than reinvent the wheel, I decided I would go out and interview women around the country and see what they had done, how they had done it, steps that they had taken, and again, most importantly, as I've said many times, the steps that didn't work so as not to be repeated. And one thing led to another. We have now a website with... Uh, 800 videos at least from women all over the country telling their stories. We have many articles up on Huffington Post sharing the stories. We have classes. We're hosting, we host conferences. The next one is February 4th in Westfield, New Jersey. And you can go to the website to learn more about that. Again, that's um, M-O-R-P-H-M-O-M.com, morphum.com. Uh, we have this uh, very exciting news. We are launching an online community subscription-based uh, thing called The Club. And again, go to the, the website for that. And most importantly, and without further ado, we host a live radio show every Thursday night. And we share amazing guests, amazing stories, amazing journeys. And there is clearly our guest tonight fits that, <laughs> fits that category. Thrilled, thrilled, thrilled to be sitting here with my co-host, Elizabeth Lenz, and with our guest, John Caldwell. He's a defense analyst with a 50-year career studying the American wars in defense think tanks and aerospace. He has worked with on projects with the Department of Defense, uh, classified research projects, NASA, and he's now a consultant with aerospace. And most recently, he's the author of Anatomy of Victory, Why the United States Triumphed in World War II fought to a stalemate in Korea, lost in Vietnam, and failed in Iraq. I'm going to say that one more time, because think about it. Think about this. Triumphed in World War II, fought to a stalemate in Korea, lost in Vietnam, and failed in Iraq. And without further ado, John, it's an honor to have you on the show. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be talking to you. So, so tell us about yourself, and I, I know I gave a brief introduction about what you've done and, and, the, and your, your journey, but tell us about it. Well, my career has been actually a series of fortuitous accidents. I've never done what I'm really trained to do. I mean, I studied in political science in college and later in graduate school. Um, I have a Ph.D. in that discipline, but I've never really been uh, functioning as one, well, what one would expect political scientists to be trained to do, which is mostly teach other people political science and occasionally work in government uh, on various kinds of things or in the State Department or in the Department of Defense. I didn't really do any of those things in the classical, following a cl classical career path. My first real job was in Saigon in 1968 when I was sort of fresh, uh, out of graduate school at the uh, dissertation stage, and I was part of a study team with a think tank 
uh, based here in Santa Barbara called General Research Corporation, kind of a RAND spinoff. And they had a contract with the Advanced Research Projects Agency uh, in the Department of Defense, which did billions of dollars a year in R&D, including research on the Vietnam War. And our project related to a project that had to be done in Vietnam. And so my boss was a retired Marine Corps colonel, but I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. What sort of gave me the impetus to write the book I wrote uh, after I retired, um, when I decided to make a contribution to the literature of political science, was I met a young officer the first week I was in Saigon. His name was Jeffrey Race. He was a Harvard ROTC graduate, and he had already completed two combat tours in Vietnam and had returned um, as a reserve officer but as a civilian to research uh, the war itself and try to understand it better. He ended up writing, in my opinion, what turned out to be the best book on the Vietnam War, which was published by the University of California Press in 1973. And Five minutes into my conversation with Jeffrey Race, this is March of 1968, about a month after the Tet Offensive had broken, um, he said to me, John, we're going to lose this war. And I was absolutely shocked by that statement. I said, my God, Jeffrey, how can you make a statement like that? Look around you. We've got 550,000 men here. We've got uh, 1,700 aircraft committed to the theater. We've got more than 10 divisions. There are virtually a million men under arms here fighting the communist revolutionary movement. Uh, we have uh, aircraft carriers offshore ready to fly missions uh, 24-7. We've got artillery batteries everywhere in the country that can hit any set of coordinates anywhere in the country. How could we possibly lose? Even if the shooting were to stop tomorrow, it would take us five years to pack up and go home. And he looked at me and very levelly said, our enemies have a theory of victory, and we don't. By which he meant that's why we were going to lose. And I think, as events turned out, he was right. Um, the last adversary standing was still the revolutionary movement, and not the South Vietnamese government backed by the United States. So, so that made a real impression. Uh, and so I decided, uh, after I retired from a uh, career in defense think tanks and uh, aerospace, um, to write a book that tried to analyze against a common framework, which I call a strategic architecture, how to analyze these conflicts in terms of winning or losing. Why did we succeed or fail? Mm -hmm. How old were you when you met him? 28 years old, if I recall, 1968. I was born in 1940. And it left that big of an impression you at the age of 28, what he had said. I'm sorry, I, I missed that. Oh, Say I'm that sorry. again. And, so it, and it left that big of an impact at the young age of 28, what he said to you that day. You're, you're breaking up. Let's try it again. <laughs> Sorry about that. So at, at that young an age, at 28 years old, he said to you, left such a, a lasting impact upon you, just his evaluation of what was going to happen and, and sort of foreseeing the future. 
Jim, I'm, I, somehow I'm not getting your question through. I think we, we're, our connection isn't working very well. You want to try it again? Can you hear me all right? We, have, yeah, we, we can, can hear, hear you. For, yeah. Um, for do those you want of call? you listening yeah. tonight, we're, on, we're going through a radio with John. So uh, I apologize for technical difficulties, but, but stay tuned with us because we're going to get to the we're, – we're getting to the good stuff. John, can you hear us now? Yes, ma'am. Okay, so and I apologize again. Um, you know, as everyone out there knows, a cell phone is is not the most trustworthy thing. But but stick with us. Um, so, John, what I'm saying was, you just mentioned at the age of 28 years old, just out of school, you're in Vietnam and you meet someone who had just gone, had done two tours, and was returning as a civilian, and made such a lasting impact upon you at a young age of 28 about his impression that you were going to lose the war and why, and. Many right. decades later, you wrote a book about that. And I was just curious that, that at the age of 28, that what he said to you had made such a big impact. And and had you thought about that, like with, with all the years to come, had you always thought you would write about it? It's been on, let me put it this way, it's been on my mind for a long time. And I'm, I'm one of these people who reads widely in the literature of geopolitics, war and conflict, um, I was, uh, Jeffrey Race and I were both, I suppose, uh, of the generation who grew up with parents who were involved in World War II, knew about World War II. I mean, there's still, I think, most Americans, uh, of a certain age anyway, uh, know something about World War II and what a, an enormously changing event it was, uh, for the country and the legacy uh, that is left behind us. I mean, a legacy, I think, perceived of success. And it's at the end of World War II in 1945 that the United States emerged as the um, superpower in the world. And uh, that has persisted to this day. And so it's partly, I think, being part of that legacy. And what came out of that experience or or being an heir to that legacy is that uh, the country back then in the 1960s was enormously confident um, and optimistic about the future in a way that I don't think is really quite the case now. And we had sort of an historical record of being successful uh, and that that this was the, the 20th century was the American century and that, it was, that life would continue that way uh, long into the future. So go and, in I think, and I think the Vietnam, the Vietnam experience, uh, failing in Vietnam, losing in Vietnam, I think changed a lot of that and produced, of course, as we know, and it's still with us, bitter political controversies. And prior to Vietnam, as far as the Korean War, would you would you think that sort of started turning the table as to uh, as to uh, when you when you mentioned in the book that you know World War Two was the victory and sort of a downhill slide from there? So do you think it began with the Korean War as well? There are certainly elements in Korea, but I think we would have to judge uh, Korea in a geopolitical sense what we did there as a success. I mean, South Korea has emerged as a real economic powerhouse. It has uh, a, uh, an enormously successful economy. There are household uh, products recognized. I mean, 
There are products that uh, Korea exports that are household names globally now. Um, that certainly wasn't the case in the 1950s. Uh, but I think uh, what we did in Korea has turned out to be a geopolitical success. At the time, when General MacArthur executed his brilliant counterstroke at Incheon, this is like 90 days after the war began, and it was a surprise attack, just like Pearl Harbor was, on June uh, 22nd of uh, 1950, I think was the date. Uh, and we were totally surprised because we had downsized our army enormously. We had uh, a standing occupation army in various parts of the world, including Korea. Uh, but we were practically pushed out of Korea before... Uh, MacArthur executed his brain counterstroke at Incheon and essentially cut off the North Korean army in the south. And uh, what I argue in the book is that at the end of the campaign, which went on for two and a half more years, our, our <clears throat> the war ended essentially where it began along the 38th parallel. So my argument in the book is that we might have found a better way to end the war much sooner uh, with much less loss of life, both for Americans and Koreans. So leaving the Korean War, so leaving World War II, you would say the American feeling was one of uh, success and, and you know, moving forward, we, had, we, had, we were the winner, we, the outcome was positive. Leaving the Korean War, what would you say? Would you say it was a similar feel, or had it begun to diminish? That feeling of success? There weren't at the end of the Korean War, there weren't victory parades. Uh, but I think there was a general feeling, I think, on the part of our, you know, public, the American public, that, uh, you know, our troops fought pretty well. But it was a frustrating war nonetheless, because after the winter of 1950-51, it, it, it turned into a grinding attrition war for both sides, where eventually after two and a half years, both sides, I think, became convinced that neither side was going to triumph over the other, and so they negotiated an armistice. We never, uh, you know, fought that conflict to the point where uh, one side surrendered to the other, which was the case in World War II. So in that sense, you can't judge it uh, success, but I think you can judge what we did there uh, in terms of resisting the attack uh, as preserving a state evolved into a democracy. So morale, so maybe not success necessarily, but morale, would it still have been high? I would think so. And that, would you say that was the change, I guess, I guess the morale and the success between Korea and Vietnam? Well, I don't think you can make the same statement about Vietnam. I mean, the, the, we lost the Vietnam War. And I, I would argue that a successful... The enduring question of the Vietnam War is really this. How was a revolutionary movement victorious over a 30-year period between 1945 and 1975, despite the considerable efforts of two Western powers, first the French, and then after 1954, the United States. 
neither one of these powers succeeded in defeating the revolutionary movement. And we, uh, the United States, for more than a decade, had substantial military, naval, and air forces executing combat missions on a daily basis in support of the armed forces of South Vietnam, which at the height of the war numbered over one million men under arms. That was certainly the case by 1971. And so the question is how and why did this massive effort fail? That's the persisting conundrum. And so what are the, so that, and, and your research and through the book takes us through that. What are some of the reasons? It was partially, I guess, the political divide back at home? Do you think that had something to do with it? Well, like, you know, you were losing a lot of the support at home with all the, those revolting the war and against the war movement. Well, let me answer, try to answer that question in one of two ways. By the time I arrived in Saigon, in March of 1968, the Tet Offensive had been underway for a month. And one of the things that happened on the first day of that offensive in Saigon was that a uh, North Vietnamese Viet Cong uh, combat group of about 20 people penetrated the perimeter of the U.S. Embassy. They blew a hole in the outer, you know, the outer wall and uh, swarmed inside the compound and were trying to break into the chancery. And the Marines who were there defending the embassy uh, fought them to a standstill. But all of that became televised worldwide. And this was, you know, a couple months after the Johnson administration, Secretary McNamara, General Westmoreland, uh, people in senior positions were saying, we see light at the end of the tunnel. And so with these television images being televised around the world, Americans simply didn't believe that anymore. That uh, how, could they, how could the administration be making an argument that there's light at the end of the tunnel if the very center of American power, namely our embassy in Saigon, could be penetrated and attacked this way? Mm-hmm. Now, the, the real truth is something a lot more complicated. The Viet Cong uh, rose up all over the country and in large numbers, and many of them were eliminated. Uh, over the course of the next month, there was serious combat in virtually every major metropolitan area in the country for a while. And essentially all of this was defeated, but it took a while, and there was some pretty serious com- combat. You may, uh, people who remember that period, remember that there was a long fight to capture the uh, old historical imperial city of Wei, for example, and the Marines had an ugly fight on their hands to succeed in doing that. The point I'm trying to make is that because the American embassy, the outer perimeter of the fence, was penetrated, we didn't seem to have a grip on security. That's what the American people perceived. And therefore, they concluded that maybe we didn't really have a strategy right. that was successful. How could we How could we be arguing that we had a successful strategy and that it was working and there's light at the end of the tunnel if this happened, something like the Tet Offensive? So I argue in the book that a, um, a strategic architecture, if you want to think of it that way, um, required, in my view, American South Vietnam South Vietnamese agreement on aligning four things. First of all, we needed 
a clearly stated policy that made a compelling case to the American, and for that matter, the South Vietnamese people, for why the government of South Vietnam deserved a massive American national commitment uh, to fighting the communists and to nation building when it resulted in the sacrifice of nearly 60,000 American lives over the course of that conflict. And was there an attempt to to describe a policy like that, or or was the government just sort of silent, um, you know, to, to the people about it? Like, what, like, did they have a did they have a message? Well, I think I, you know, people would argue that I mean, various theories, strategic theories were offered at the time, but it wasn't a compelling case that convinced. Um, those who were in doubt about the war. Uh, you have to bear in mind that in the early years of the war, and certainly even in 1968, a majority of the American people supported the war. But the kind of arguments that were being presented went like these. I mean, if we don't defeat the communists in Vietnam, uh, they're going to be uh, they're going to be in San Francisco eventually. Well. That simply wasn't the case for anybody who really had a realistic grip on things. The Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese didn't have a navy that was capable of going anywhere. Uh, uh, in fact, they didn't have a navy at all. Right. And so to suggest that, uh, you know, the continental United States and cities on the West Coast were under threat the same way they were perceived to be under threat uh, after Pearl Harbor was simply... Uh, an exaggeration, or to argue that necessarily if uh, South Vietnam uh, were to go communist, that all other countries in Southeast Asia would also go communist, although there was some plausibility to that argument as events turned out. That certainly happened in Cambodia, it happened in Laos, Mm -hmm. it didn't in Thailand, Uh, so it was kind of a mix. The point is, these were not... I think the way Americans would perceive it as compelling national interests. Mm-hmm. There wasn't anything in Vietnam that was of strategic value to us. We simply were taking the position that a an aggressive state shouldn't gobble up the government, shouldn't subvert the government of you know what was a seemingly democratic state. The problem was that. Uh, the South Vietnamese and we together didn't really have a political strategy that was sufficient to undermine the revolutionary, the communist revolutionary movements set of policies um, that were attracting enough people into the movement to continually attack um, South Vietnamese administration in rural areas all over the country. And we didn't have a military strategy that pulled together all of the uh, military and civil capabilities of both countries in a way that they could operate really effectively together. And what what was the message that was coming from um, you know the, the North Vietnamese that the communists what 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 was their message that was so appealing that. Um, citizens of that country kept joining that kept joining that movement. 
Well, you're asking, the question you're really asking is how did that movement succeed in getting people in South Vietnam, or for that matter, even in North Vietnam, to assume the risk of death right. on behalf of uh, what they were espousing? Right. And I think it went like this. They were, you know, you didn't have to get to that many people. You just had to be a little bit better than the other guys, meaning us. Mm -hmm. And I think the way they succeeded in doing it was they had a set of what Jeffrey Race in the book he wrote called preemptive social and economic policies that were just good enough to attract enough people into the movement. So the psychology might work like this. Uh, to get a uh, South Vietnamese farmer to release his son for service into the communist movement for, say, six months out of the year during the combat season. The Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese Workers' Party would promise this farmer that, one, they'd keep his son out of the South Vietnamese draft when they came through combing for recruits. They'd give him a safe haven, uh, and they would ask him to help serve the movement uh, when it was necessary, and in exchange for that, the farmer would get a couple of hectares of land of his own to farm, but uh, and and in his own village. But he had to be supportive of the movement, and he had to make sure that the movement succeeded in having a sustained presence in the village in order for that to happen. And and be able to farm the land uh, that they would provide. And the government's land redistribution program was far less pervasive and efficient and was run pretty much centrally from Saigon. I'm oversimplifying a lot here. But, but the point I'm trying to make is they were able to attract enough people who were willing to risk, take the risk of death to get involved in the movement to be able to do this. So, over a long period of time. In your, and, in your research of the, and, and, and going over all this in the decade or however long it was we were there, it, having gone over it and, and when do you think the right time would have been? It, clearly it was dragged out for much too long. What, what do you think an alternative would have been or when would the better time to sort of pull the trigger on this and said, no, it's, it's, it's time to stop and to get out? Probably sometime in the early 1960s, John F. Kennedy, when he was president in the last year of his presidency, actually he said it shortly before he was assassinated, I think in October, or September, October of 1963, told Walter Cronkite in an interview that, you know, this is a conflict that the South Vietnamese have to win for themselves. We can't do it for them. It's their war. They have to win it. We can help them. We can send uh, military equipment and supplies, but it's really their conflict, and they have to have, they have to develop the basis to win it. We can't do it for them. That might have been the time to sit down and have a uh, much more straightforward negotiation uh, with the regime where we would hammer out a set of agreements in some kind of a diplomatic note where we might say, 
well, we're risking our blood and our money here too, um, as much as you guys are. And if you really want to keep your government, and if you really want to keep your uh, society together, we think you need to do some things a little differently. And uh, in order to do that, uh, we need to be able to uh, trust you and uh, operate in a way such that, uh, you know, the two of us together uh, can work out a series of collegial arrangements, pretty much the way we did it in World War II with the British and some of our other allies, where we created all kinds of institutions where the allies essentially functioned uh, in many ways as a single force. And that really didn't happen in quite the same way in Vietnam because we were... uh, sensitive to the fact that the South Vietnamese were a proud, sovereign state. They hadn't really been defeated uh, by the communists, but they were combating them. And they had uh, their whole society being undermined, and I think neither we nor the South Vietnamese analyzed what was happening to that society at a sufficient level of depth. I mean, one, we didn't have very many South Vietnamese speakers. We didn't know much about the history of Vietnam, which goes back a thousand years. Uh, we knew very little, not enough about the culture. There were some Americans who did, but we were essentially trying to provide or apply, uh, in a military sense, the World War II doctrine that succeeded. Uh, many of the officers who were in command of Vietnam had been uh, World War II officers, successful ones. General Westmoreland, for example, was an artillery officer. He fought courageously in North Africa. Uh, it was his artillery unit that uh, saved uh, the battle at Kasserine Pass, which was a uh, tactical defeat for the Americans early in the war in North Africa, saved that from being a, uh, a route in uh, a particularly key sector of the conflict. Uh, he distinguished himself in Sicily. At one point, he had a jeep completely blown out from under him and yet kept right on functioning. He was an airborne uh, artillery commander in Korea, so he was an experienced officer. And one of the things he came away with was the validity of the doctrine that the Army has had since the Civil War, which was, you know, find, fix, fight, and finish the enemy decisively. And that, what emerged after World War II was a belief that we could do that with firepower. Mm -hmm. Well, I think by the time we were deployed in Vietnam, under that kind of doctrinal leadership, we were facing a totally different kind of conflict. There was no front to speak of. Uh, There was uh, risk of death, or I should say risk of conflict virtually everywhere in society. There was difficulty trying to even find the enemy and engage because we weren't dealing with a conventionally organized enemy. We're dealing with a guerrilla force. And that was something that had been in our experience before but something that we didn't really fully grasp uh, in Vietnam soon enough. I mean, I think eventually we sort of did, uh, but then it was too late. And I guess and I, would, I guess that's what you're saying, too. The geography was such a different, it was a totally different landscape in Vietnam as it had been before. 
with jungle warfare and, and, you know, the risk of civilians versus Viet Cong. It was just a whole different landscape, too, I, I think. Or, or, I don't know yes, it was. Yes, it was. I mean, the, you know, a lot of the country was, it was covered by double, if not triple, canopy jungle. It was hard to uh, isolate the enemy and uh, find, you know, to uh, identify where they were operating and in what kind of force. Uh, so we were left with the problem of how does an army find, fix, fight, and finish an enemy whose language it cannot speak, whose culture it doesn't really understand in, in sufficient detail, uh, whose history it knows very little about. How are you going to do that? Um, and I think we, uh, it was that kind of confidence coupled with the ignorance that we brought to the conflict that, uh, made it very difficult to be successful. And so we tried to do it with firepower and technology, but every time we applied firepower, particularly air power, and we dropped four times the tonnage that we dropped, you know, bomb tonnage that we dropped in World War II. So this was, you know, a, a landscape that was bombed heavily. And we were trying to prevent, uh, you know, the passage of uh, food and material and military equipment down the Ho Chi Minh Trail, uh, where pretty much the supplies were being carried uh, by the speed of feet by individuals. Uh, and yet eventually the Ho Chi Minh Trail developed into what amounted to a paved highway system. Uh, and still we couldn't uh, prevent that from happening. Uh, and so our reliance on air power and technology uh, really didn't help us in this case. It's not, not the way it did in World War Two. And would you say that with this as well, when you were, we, we talked about earlier, when, you know, years before may have been the time to, to get back on the table and make this and discuss and get out of this war, the media coverage and the political divide at home also played a big part in this. Do you think there was a part of like kind of saving face, like, oh, no, 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 you're wrong at home. We're going to stay in this and we're going to win. Do you think that was ever sort of a motivation as well? to sort of show them they're wrong, we can do this? I'm, I'm, you spoke so fast, I'm not sure I can understand the complete thrust of your question. Are you asking me did, what, what influence the media had in all of this? Well, I would say media, but also almost a, a political motivation to kind of save face, where there was so much divide at home, and, and before there had been the morale, you know, leading up to this, and now in Vietnam, you're losing the morale, and you've got a divisive community, and half the support is, you know, half are supporting, and half are saying, we're losing all these young kids, and we want to back out of this war. Do you think part of the reason we stayed in much longer than we should have was a result of the media coverage sort of firing, you know, the people saying, no, no, this is a mistake, and, the, and then sort of trying to maintain their sort of safe face? Well, I think one of the things you have to understand is that during World War II, there was there were restrictions placed on, you know, newspaper and radio coverage. Of course, there was no television, and it wasn't real time reporting anyway. I mean, reporters filed news reports, and uh, the military 
uh, censored every news report that was sent out, uh, you know, either to London or to New York or wherever it was going. Um, and so they were, and they, they did that on the basis of saying, you know, the military security uh, mandated this. Well, that meant that negative and embarrassing interpretations of a particular campaign or battle uh, might be modified or deleted in reports. Right. I mean, the military was in a, in, a, in a position of much more control over the flow of news because they realized that the way uh, events get reported can very much influence uh, enemy behavior and morale. Uh-huh. And also home front uh, right. attitudes and morale. Uh, for example, if if you know CBS and NBC and ABC had had newsmen ashore on D-Day, uh, you know, filming what was happening, right. you know, the kind of images you see when you watch a movie like Saving Private Ryan or mm-hmm. The Longest Day or something like that, you begin to see that. Uh, Maybe the uh, U.S. military isn't all it's cracked up to be because you were you were you were filming a single tactical series of events and you still didn't know what the outcome was. Or once the troops were ashore and they were trying to you know penetrate through the hedgerows of uh, Normandy in that part of France in order to break out of the beachhead and how difficult all of that was, they might have said, you know, well, you know, the troops got ashore okay, but now they don't have a strategic plan for how to develop the battle into victory to defeat the Third Reich and get to Berlin. And if you had people reporting that way, then we might have had a different reaction altogether, particularly since there were a fair number of casualties, tens of thousands actually incurred during that period. And I guess social media and, is a great and, and, and the and, and the media were pretty much free to report anything they wanted when they were in uh, Vietnam. And, and this now is a great segue, again, the media, and in the, as we refer to it, in the 60s and 70s, now becoming social media, present day, and moving to the Iraq War. Again, we're speaking with John Colwell, author of Anatomy of Victory. Why the U.S. triumphed in World War II, fought in a stalemate in Korea, lost in Vietnam, and failed in Iraq. And we've been discussing sort of World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and how media sort of became an influencer in Vietnam and had access that it had not had before. But now we come to Iraq where now social media is involved with, you know, Instagram and Facebook and the Internet. And I'm just curious, do you think that's had an impact as well or or as it did in Vietnam as television, now it's even everything is accessible and it's instant. I don't know how you feel if that's had any impact at all in the most recent war, you know, in Iraq and just more recently. Well, let's let's take Iraq and, and think about it for a minute. This is a this has been a series of conflicts that have been going on for the last quarter century. And the way I divide it up into my book is I talk about it as, a, as the Iraqi wars. In fact, it was a series of what I would call five wars, consecutive conflicts that were occurring uh, on a daily basis, where conflict was occurring on a daily basis, lives were being taken, and lives were being lost, and yet they were operationally distinguishable 
and in some ways, politically, somewhat different. For example, in 1990, you had Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait. Mm -hmm. And George H.W. Bush, whose funeral was yesterday, I think did something right. He actually uh, stated very clearly that this cannot stand and uh, said, you know, our, our goal in this conflict is to liberate Kuwait. In fact, those two words, liberate Kuwait, were the last two words of the operational order that General Norman Schwarzkopf received uh, when he launched, uh, you know, the, the initial operation, uh, Desert Storm. That's a clear yes. goal. <clears throat> I'm sorry. No, I just say so. That's a clear goal, an, an actual demonstrable goal that you can that you can achieve or not achieve. It was a goal that Americans could understand right. clearly, right. because you had, you know, a dictatorship that had, that had invaded a neighboring state to get its oil, mm -hmm. and also not have to pay back substantial loans that it had where it had borrowed uh, billions of dollars to fight the Iran-Iraq war between 1980 and 1988. Dom also initiated. Uh, so he was, you know, an aggressive hegemon. And <clears throat> what you had at the end of the conflict, uh, which lasted about, Six months, there was some preparation that went on to get a force in, being in place. Um, but once combat operations were, were launched with an air campaign and then a four-day ground operation, it was all over pretty rapidly, uh, essentially in 100 hours. And what people, you know, could argue about whether the uh, final resolution of the conflict was a geopolitical success or not. It certainly liberated Kuwait. I mean, we accomplished what we set out to do, mm -hmm. but we didn't necessarily strategically deal with a resolution of Saddam because he survived and claimed that he survived and won by not losing. Right. So we went, then we went, so I, that's what I call Iraqi War One, And Iraqi War Two began almost immediately afterwards with an air campaign led by us with some allies, the British and the French, but mostly us, where over a 13-year period, there was an immense amount of air activity. Something like 400,000 uh, combat sorties were flown by the U.S. Air Force and the Navy, the Marines, uh, the Royal Air Force, and even the French at, at various times. And <clears throat> that was intended to secure refugee areas in both northern and southern Iraq. And there was a lot more air activity and combat activity than people realized with those 400,000 sorties. And it was virtually going on on a daily basis throughout that 13-year period. That was between 1991 and 2000, April of 2003, when George W. Bush, the president's younger son, then decided to invade Iraq a second time because Saddam in his view and the administration's view, in fact, most of our allies' view was that uh, Saddam was not complying with the UN resolutions that flowed out of the uh, agreement to expose all of their WMD and make it subject to international inspection by the United Nations. Mm 
and, and I don't mean to interrupt. And... John, I, I have Go a ahead. So in between, though, when you said that bombing went on for almost a decade, um, what was the rationale? Was it always the, the rationale that they weren't complying? I know when you were saying when uh, it was the second time, it, 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 during all that bombing, what was the rationale behind it? It was mostly to protect. We, we established two no-fly zones over northern and southern Iraq. We said the uh, Iraqi Air Force could no longer function as an Air Force, although we did say that they could operate helicopters. Uh, But anything that flew uh, to suppress uh, populations uh, like the Kurds in the north or the Shia in the south, we could interfere with and did. Did we have an ulterior motive behind that or was it pretty for face value? I mean, was there another reason? Well, I think if you go back and read the UN resolutions, all of these were done in support of UN resolutions. All of these operations were executed according to UN uh, authorizations. There were a whole series of uh, resolutions that were passed uh, in the 1990s during this period. And they all, by the late 19... the 2000s, especially after 9-1-1, began to come to a head when there were concerns that Saddam wasn't complying with the uh, resolutions and allowing adequate inspections, and we thought that he might be working on a nuclear weapon again. And all of the world's principal intelligence services agreed with that assessment, actually. I mean, it turned... It, in the event, it turned out to be wrong. Anyway, that became War Three with the Bush invasion, and essentially combat operations were over in a month. And then the question became, what do we do now? Mm-hmm. And I don't think there was a clear answer to that. We didn't really have an end game thought out. We thought we don't do nation building anymore because we had failed at nation building in Vietnam, therefore we don't do it. So now the army's going to pack up and go home. Well, that didn't turn out to be the case either. Uh, we didn't really have a, a post-war plan to secure the peace. Uh, when we had victory virtually in our grasp after we moved into Baghdad. American troops stood around. They were combat trained units uh, and essentially had no instruction or orders to provide civil order. And so there was widespread looting in Baghdad and elsewhere in the country. Uh, A few months after that, uh, we established a coalition provision authority where he essentially abolished the Iraqi army and the police services. And what did that do? That created a you know large population of young men who were well-armed with lots of ammunition who then mounted an insurgency. The insurgency virtually began the day after Saddam's statue was pulled down with the looting and the uh, breakdown of civil order in Baghdad and other cities in the country. And that became what I called War Four, and it evolved into a Sunni insurgency. And it was finally, it became obvious to the Bush administration by the uh, late fall of 2006 
that, uh, you know, Baghdad was essentially on fire. We couldn't secure the city. We couldn't secure the country by any means. And that resulted in a change of command and General David Petraeus uh, deploying or going to Iraq and taking over and mounting the surge, uh, which I describe in some detail in the chapters of my book in the uh, what I call the War Four chapter. And <clears throat> that, over a period of a year, uh, did stabilize things to a considerable degree and reduced the amount of violence dramatically, but it didn't wipe it out. And, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda in Iraq was functioning after 9-1-1 in the country. Uh, and by, I would say, probably 2008, 2009, we had pretty well uh, ground it down, but not completely. Uh, but then we had a change of administration with the Obama uh, administration coming in in 2009, essentially highly critical of the Iraq war. And uh, by the end of 2011, Obama fulfilled a, a campaign promise saying, I'm going to bring all the troops home, which he did. And we essentially gave up all the leverage we had in Iraq uh, through the whole of government effort that General Petraeus and Ambassador Ryan Crocker and others had made uh, during the surge period. And uh, a couple of years after that, uh, the Iraq conflict evolved into what I call War Five, with the emergence of ISIS. Mm -hmm. And you may remember the Obama administration characterizing them initially as the JV team, but they turned out to be a lot more lethal than that. And by the summer of 2014, essentially, it overrun an area the size of France in Mesopotamia, especially Iraq and uh, parts of Syria that was, uh, you know, a territory the size of France, and they were administering it uh, and calling themselves a caliphate. And so I, I go through all of that and essentially end up on page 431 of the book saying that, you know, looking at World War II as a benchmark, I suggest that maybe four simple imperatives emerge when Americans meaning our statesmen and generals, contemplate military expeditionary missions in remote parts of the world. And I say before everything else, they need to do four things. Define a successful geopolitical outcome in keeping with American core interests, core interests that Americans can understand and relate to, mm -hmm. and then plan backward from that concept of an end state. What is it going to take to get there? And that means the second thing, defining a strategy as a sequence of political and military operations to get to that end state. And if statesmen, meaning, meaning presidents and generals can't do that, or if the range of acceptable alternatives cannot be defined or is unknowable, the enterprise is a hostage to fortune and probably likely doomed to fail. But if it isn't, if you do have a strategy, then you need to define a set of executable plans that are realistic for the, a sequence of operations where you can specify the resources that are going to be adequate to get you to the goal, the end state that you want to achieve. And if a government is unprepared to do this at the outset, or if 
it thinks it's going to be protracted, it invites failure. And when statesmen and generals think a conflict might be one that, where we have to play a long game, mm -hmm. defining an exit strategy is a complete oxymoron. Because exit is what happens after governments and armies prevail and win. Right. That was why World War II was such a compelling benchmark. It was only after we won that Americans could come home. And the last piece of that is, if you have got a set of executable plans, you have to then execute those plans, where comprehensive whole-of-government operations and resources are identified in detail with realistic schedules. And successful execution in that sense means a well-thought-out endgame. So that's kind of how the... Those are the kinds of issues that I raise in the book that I don't think military leaders or members of Congress or even uh, presidents are necessarily inclined to ask but should ask. Now, what? so you say we lost in Vietnam and failed in Iraq. What's the difference between losing and failing in this, in this structure? Well, <clears throat> the conflict in Iraq has been going on since when? Since 1990. And yet it's still a conflict, and Iraq appears from time to time still on the front pages. It's an unresolved conflict. Oh, but, but you know, and, we have, and, and we have military forces deployed there. Okay. That, that I th you know, something that drags on that long says to me, we're not succeeding. We're failing. And in the case of Vietnam, we failed completely because all you have to do is look at the video film of the helicopter skids with Vietnamese hanging on to them as they're departing our embassy. That was a failure. Yeah. That, that was a defeat. We lost because we didn't, we chose not, we chose not to intervene. In fact, Congress passed a statute in 1973 that said, this is in the wake of Watergate, that said no more military operations in Vietnam. We are not going to fund this. And without money, nothing happened. Right. So you mentioned earlier, and we only have a couple minutes left, but you mentioned earlier that Vietnam in your estimation or opinion, could have ended much earlier had they, had they sort of recognized and sat down. With Iraq being the way it is, what suggestion, you know, what suggestion would you have going forward is, like, what do you do? They're, they're, they're failing. What do you do? Well, I think we, I, I discuss it a bit in the um, Iraqi chapters, uh, particularly during the surge. I think, you know, there was a template for, how to deal with the government of Iraq that I think was pioneered by uh, General David Petraeus and Ambassador Ryan Crocker and the people working for them. Petraeus and Crocker, during the surge period, this is 2007, 2008, 2009, often met with Prime Minister Maliki on a daily basis more than once. And they worked out a... Uh, routine together, I think, you know, almost a kind of good cop, bad cop kind of kind of uh, relationship with uh, Maliki where they would 
lean on him to make decisions he didn't really want to make. And I describe those in some detail in the book. So this was much more of a hands-on kind of relationship where uh, both sides were trying to build some trust. Both sides were talking together about things that needed to happen and uh, paying close attention to it. At one point, uh, General Petraeus became very interested in something called Tower 57, which was a uh, transmission power line uh, that was carrying a lot of the electricity into Baghdad, uh, which had been during that period intermittent. And that particular tower was being attacked by the insurgents every time it was repaired. They had to figure out a solution for that. And so Petraeus, you know, put that on his top ten list and, you know, kept talking about it until finally it got Maliki to call up the ministry that was responsible for Tower 57 to take some action. And I think together with the Americans, they solved the problem, but it took months for that to happen. But the point is, he kept at it. Because he knew it was significant, and he knew people understood electrical power. I mean, if you don't have it, uh, people notice that on a daily basis. And so he wanted to create the impression, this is just one of many dimensions. Uh, He wanted to create the impression that uh, what we were doing during the surge was actually accomplishing something positive. There were lots of other things like that. I don't mean to interrupt, but I can't believe we're out of time. Um, Of course. and that was a great teaser, though, that everyone should read the, the book to find this all out. And, John, what is the best way for people to get the book? And, again, Anatomy of Victory, Why the United States Triumphed in World War II, Fought to Stalemate in Korea, Lost in Vietnam, and Failed in Iraq. My publisher assures me, Roman and Littlefield, that it's available in any reputable bookstore. It's also available on Amazon. Well, and it's coming out in audio pretty soon, right? I think it's... Um, I think it's already in audio. Oh, I thought it was going to get, okay. It's available as an e-book, it's available as a hardback, and there's an audio version available. Well, it's been an absolute honor to have you on the show. I've learned so much. I have so much more to learn. But I think it's also a perfect time as a shout-out to all of our current and past military men and women that have served so hard at the hands of those strategists and those who have sort of sat behind tables. And, and... And, John, what you've brought to light and everything they've experienced, and I think our gratitude is to you to bringing their stories to life and our gratitude to all the military men and women, again, past and prior. And, by the way, our producer tonight is a a military woman as well. Um, I just wanted to say that as well. And, Jade, thank you and to all. Awesome. You're most welcome, ma'am. I'm I'm not really an expert. I'm just a diligent student. (laughs) Think of me that way. So, John, thank you again. Thank you for everything you've done. Thank you for the book. Thank you for sharing your time tonight. And everyone knows the best Christmas or holiday present. Go out and get this book. We have a lot to learn. Thank you very much, ma'am. Thank you. And everyone, we'll see you next week. Thank you, Jay. Thank you, Elizabeth. Good night. Good night.